this podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. You have some nice plants in the background. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll thank my in-laws for the back. I got the, um, there's an elephant in the background, um, you know, it's a, a symbol of bipartisan unity. That's oh, what I'm going for oh, here. Okay. So, yeah. so that's great. Even before we start, we're already sort of getting into the uh, the politics of the moment, which is perfect. Yeah. I think I have yeah. the two people I need for this. In the middle of COVID-19, the domestic politics references behind you, Adham. It's perfect, perfect introduction to what we're going to talk about. First Absolutely. and foremost, thank you both for joining. I know these are very strange times. We have our preferred location for pretending like we're at an office. This has become an office setup for me. Um, I also want to thank you for reaching out at him because this is a topic that I'm interested in, and I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I saw both your names included. So Shadi, thank you for joining into this conversation. We can start off with the article because I think it kind of speaks to the moment. Something that was, I think, uh, before COVID-19, this was a maybe a, a, a more covered story. And it almost seems like the whole domestic politics thing has taken a way back seat, way, way to the back. So let's bring it back to the front. I got the feeling from this piece, how foreign policy factors for American Muslims in 2020, as a sort of, this is an instinctual reaction I got, is that two things matter. First, and maybe for the first time in recent memory, the Muslim American vote is a critical vote. And that's something I, I haven't sort of read this or seen this articulated the way you guys did. So that's important. The second thing is that the Arab-Israeli conflict can now be debated thoroughly. And this is something also new. Let's start with the first one, the Muslim American block, if you will. Is this something that you kind of, you sort of, and I'll start with you, Adham. Did you sense this as sort of being a foreign policy advisor to Peter Buttigieg? I will not say Butrus Abujij. Well, actually, screw it, I'll say it. Butrus Abujij. Did, did you sense that there was a sort of a growing curiosity in the Muslim American experience, at least when it comes to a Democratic nominee? Or is this something that goes before that, that this is sort of an experiencing experience that you've witnessed regardless of the last and, and current election? Certainly. Um, and those are great uh, places to start. Um, I think I'll start with some of, uh, you know, what, what drove me into um, politics in the first place and um, uh, policy at large. Um, I grew up in the southwest suburbs of Chicago, uh, a suburb called Bridgeview, uh, densely populated by Arab Americans um, around uh, one of the most uh, prominent mosques in the country in the Midwest. Um, and it was in that sort of post-9-11 wake where uh, a lot of members in the community started to sort of wake up and um, get civically engaged at the local, municipal, and state level, uh, and eventually into you know, national politics. Um, you know, when, uh, you know, uh, when Shadi and I published this piece, you know, we got a lot of interesting feedback and, uh, you know, everyone wants to, uh, chime in very thoughtfully with what they thought about, you know, uh, the eighties or what they thought about the nineties. And, you know, I'll say that I wasn't really around for that. So, um, you know, maybe, uh, we'll have Shadi ha handle some of that, not, not to, not to age you Shadi. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I'll say that in, in, in my experience, um, uh, the uh, response to the uh, Bush-Cheney years, the uh, invasion of Iraq, uh, the securitization of the U.S. government's relationship with the American Muslim community and the Muslim world at large, um, these uh, uh, largely national security sort of uh, topics drove uh, the Muslim community to 
um, mobilized for Barack Obama uh, mm. in 2007-2008. And, um, you know, it wasn't surprising that folks, um, you know, uh, organized these get-out-the-vote campaigns uh, and voted for him, uh, at, you know, in mass. Uh, but before that, I remember, you know, as a kid, um, you know, sitting in the cafeteria uh, during the Gore-Bush election, folks were coming and saying, you know, my classmates were saying, you know, my dad said vote for uh, vote for Bush because, you know, Al Gore is not going to be good on Israel-Palestine. And I didn't know anything about that at the time. I think I was in, you know, what, second grade, first grade. Well, but now, I remember... Now, now I feel old. <laughs> yeah, my, my apologies. Uh, but, you know, th- th- this was... Um, I, you know, I sort of saw that evolution um, from the post-9-11 era um, onwards. Um, I would say that uh, the Arab Spring sort of derailed a lot of that energy and momentum that was... Um, you know, catapulting American Muslims into the national scene, into democratic politics. Um, a lot of these institutions, and this was stuff that uh, Shadi and I alluded to, a lot of these American Muslim, prominent American Muslim institutions, MPAC, CARE, uh, MASS, um, ISNA, are largely uh, driven by and led by or founded by uh, immigrants of Arab, uh, Middle Eastern, South Asian descent. Yeah. Um, and I want to preface all of this, and we tried to do this in, in the article as much as we can without having too many caveats, that the American Muslim community is not one block. It is uh, enormous. It is very diverse. You have African-American Muslims who have been in this country since before the nation's founding. You have Latino Muslims who are the uh, 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 largest growing demographic uh, of uh, the Muslim community by, by conversion. Um, and... Um, you know, so in no way do we want to erase uh, other segments of the community from that narrative. But, you know, when the Arab Spring happened, uh, folks like uh, people in the Syrian American community, where I come from, um, began to look back to the motherland. Um, my Egyptian American friends and folks who were concerned with what was happening in Egypt uh, began to look to what's happening there. Uh, my Libyan American friends began to look, you know, look at what's happening back home, the hopes and aspirations of their family members and friends back home. We were, you know, well connected to that, given that we were, you know, first or second generation, not right. quite that removed from the politics abroad. Then Trump comes in and sort of, uh, uh, I think, shakes folks back into, you know, realizing that we can't afford to uh, keep our foot off the pedal. We can't afford to uh, have this sort of atrophy um, in our national uh, organizations. Um, and uh, through various vessels, whether it was the Women's March or the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 uh, and other activities organizing against the Muslim ban, for instance, uh, you start to see this um, uh, the, the American Muslim community being a keystone species. I wouldn't say a very important electoral block, but I would say a keystone species within uh, progressive democratic um, organizing. And I'll, I'll just stop there. No, and I, before Shadi, I just wanted to say that I, that's a very nice sort of uh, introduction to the bottom-up experience, that this is sort of the American Muslim engagement in, in, in local politics. And I, I hope I got this right. The Muslim American population is 1% of the total population. So it's, a, I mean, it's a small affair. It's very small, but it's also something else that's happening, which is the maybe the top-down approach, which is that there's a political curiosity, and I got the feeling that there was outreach for the maybe in my experience the first time a sincere outreach from the nominees from the, from the candidates. Sorry, uh, curious about Muslim American voices. And Shadi, could you maybe sort of sort of talk about that? That sort of this unusual, whether it's Sanders speaking openly about Palestinian rights, whether it's even Elizabeth Warren sort of championing protests in Lebanon and Iraq, that kind of curiosity. Yeah, well, so so first of all, I mean, as you said, we're, we're about 1% of the American population, but we're, I'd say, influential beyond our numbers, and that's a somewhat recent thing. Mm. And, uh, you know, Barack Obama, whatever else you think about him, and he kept his distance from the Muslim community. He kept us at arm's length, and understandably so, because, um, you know, he was uh, perceived as Muslim by a surprisingly large number of Republican voters, but also— I mean, a lot of us Muslims joke that he was the first Muslim president and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to emphasize that too much because people might get the wrong idea. I mean, I don't actually think Obama was Muslim. It's just like a, 
uh, but he is like sort of part of the family in some sense, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, in in a sort of counterintuitive way, Donald Trump's election was obviously very worrying and frightening for a lot of us. And I remember trying to process what his victory meant the day after, the weeks after. And even in the lead up to the election, I think there were some worst case scenarios where we're like, how bad could this actually get? And there was almost I remember that I had the talk with my parents. There was sort of a Muslim version of the talk where it's like, hey, um, if it gets really bad, what are our backup options here? And my dad is also a Canadian citizen. So half jokingly, but also I think half seriously, we had a conversation where he was like, hey, just so you're aware. And I and sometimes I forget that my dad still has his Canadian citizenship. But it's like, you know, there is a path to citizenship if you I don't know exactly how it works, but God forbid there is a sort of a backup option here. So there was that side of Trump's election. Mm. But in a way, Trump also propelled us into the cultural mainstream in in a brand new way. Mm-hmm that because Trump was so obsessed with us, and this is starting with the campaign, with the proposed Muslim ban and all of that, he made us a centerpiece of the national conversation. And because of that, I remember in 2015, everyone was talking about us. We had become an object of other people's conversations. Mm -hmm. And when Trump actually became president, what that meant for the Democratic Party was one way to signal your anti-Trump credentials was to be very pro-Muslim. And it was a way to kind of be like, oh, Trump, look, he has this obsession with Muslims. He doesn't like Muslims. So we're going to be the opposite of whatever he's doing. And I like that. It's good because the Democratic Party really came out um, defending Muslims and opposing the Muslim ban and the various iterations of the Muslim ban, what there were like three or four or whatever. So that there, so there was a moment in 2017 where a lot of this stuff was coming to a head. And I think that, um, there were also more Muslim voices that were willing to speak out on behalf of their Muslim identity, people who weren't very visibly Muslim before, Aziz Ansari is an interesting case who became more vocal about Islamophobia, even though before 2017, Aziz Ansari was very open about saying that he didn't Mm -hmm. consider himself theologically Muslim. He Mm -hmm. wasn't religious. He wasn't a believer. But Trump sort of, he, he made us, he made even people who weren't very Muslim, in quotation marks, feel a need to speak up. Um, because we seemed Muslim, we were visibly Muslim. Uh, so, so I think those dynamics are really interesting to look at. And then we see later on the rise of very visibly Muslim politicians like Ilhan and Rashida Tlaib and, mm-hmm. and so on. And that's interesting because we're it, even though like I think there's a debate in the Muslim community about how much we like or don't like we shouldn't presume that all Muslims like Ilhan and Rashida. Sure, that said, sure. we are all sort of on a first name basis with them. Even when we talk about them, like amongst ourselves, like, hey, wait, what do you think about Ilhan? Or like, hey, let's see. Did you see what Rashida said the yeah. other day? Yeah. And um, as it turns out, it just shows you also like what a small world this is. Um, a good friend, uh, uh, Rashida is actually roommates with one of my good friends here in D.C. Okay, but I don't know. Okay, but I don't know if we're supposed to be public about that. Okay, so I will. I'll I'll edit that part out. We'll just (laughs) beep. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. But I remember. Yeah. So it's just like interesting that it's like we're all we're all like two degrees from anyway. Yeah. So but to get to your bigger question about so. Then there's also the mainstreaming of the um, the mainstreaming of the predominant Muslim position on Israel Palestine. Again, I don't want to. We have to be careful about overgeneralizing. There isn't a Muslim position on Israel Palestine, but I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of American Muslims 
are at least to to one degree or another pro-Palestinian in the sense that they don't like the idea of Palestinians being killed or repressed by Israeli occupation forces. That's a fair, I think, generalization to make. There are major differences, though, on one state versus two state and things like that. But um, but most, you know, most American Muslims think that um, the, the U.S. government is too unquestioningly pro-Israeli. And I think that if you look at the Democratic Party, there has been a major shift. And one thing that we really emphasize in our piece is that there has been a sea change in how the Democratic Party talks about Israel-Palestine. And I think we, as American Muslims, have have become have become part of that. I mean, that we're no longer an outlier. We're not the ones who sort of have to um, uh, to, to we don't have to kind of um, you don't have to explain not yourselves per se. It's sort of like it's out in the open in a sense that yeah. now it's, it's easy to engage this topic as opposed to just a few years ago. You almost seemed like you're on the fringe when you'd bring yeah, up. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no longer on the fringe and we're in the mainstream of the party because the, the party has changed and has become more, um, more willing to speak out on behalf of Palestinian rights to various mm-hmm. degrees. Um, but you saw that, I think, certainly even the fact that Bernie Sanders, the fact that he would say things that would be quite controversial five years ago or 10 years ago, talking about um, condition, uh, conditionality with U.S. military aid to Israel. That mm-hmm. used to be a third rail of the American public conversation. No one used to talk about that. But he would bring up these issues, and they weren't even that controversial. Right. And people were like, oh, you know, that's Bernie. And the fact that you could speak out about those things without it ruining your career, without it make without it making it impossible for you to be the front runner, and let's recall that Bernie for like two weeks was the front runner, that tells us something about the shifting discourse within the Democratic Party. And we can talk about this more, but how Israel Palestine isn't just about Israel Palestine. Right. It's a proxy for a deeper set of ethical commitments on progressive foreign policy. You know, I want to take it a step back, and I, mm-hmm. I like that there's a Pew Research poll you, you included, which is the, the uh, sort of the, um, I'll say this carefully, Muslim-American attitude towards the LBGTQ community, or at least homosexuality in general. And I think in uh, 2007, it was something like 20-some percent, 27%, if I'm not mistaken, and only just a few years later, 10 years later, it's, it's gone up. It's in the 50s, 52%, yeah. which is astounding. So that in itself is a – and that's ha, that has nothing to do with Arab-Israel conflict. That's got nothing to do with Middle East affairs. That's a very domestic uh, evolution. And I want to just sort of gauge you on this. This is a a new alliance, so to speak, on the, on the left, center-left, left, that you have sort of um, – that kind of discourse, and it also includes a fairly socially conservative segment of American society for the large part. And I think, Adam, you may have alluded to that earlier, that you grew up with a father who kind of was sort of, he thought Bush would be a better candidate than Gore. And I'm guessing not just because of the Israeli-Palestinian stuff, it could have been also for other things too. And I have my own relatives in the States that are that have leaned Republican without me really understanding why. And over time, I sort of see it as more social conservative attitudes than anything else. And then you have on the left, the Bernie Sanders crowd and that segment too. And sort of a, it's an unusual moment where they're kind of lining up. And then that community, the LGBTQ community becomes very pro-Palestinian too. They're the ones kind of speaking up very, very favorably to Palestinian rights. So then that's just 10 years. What What is it about those 10 years? Is it a reaction to the Iraq war? Is it the post 9-11 environment? And is it disillusionment with Obama? What is it that that decade kind of spells dramatic change? Shadi, if I may, Um, I think one thing uh, that I, I, you know, like to emphasize is that it's not necessarily, I don't think there's a clean split between domestic and and foreign. Um, Mm. I I think uh, a lot of, uh, American Muslims' views on various public policy issues also reflect the evolution 
and this growing sophistication of American Muslims' views on their own sense of citizenry and their belonging in the world and their agency as Americans and their understanding of the difference between, um, you know, civil laws and religious laws. I mean, these are things that Shadi can um, uh, speak to at, at, at much more depth. Um, and, and so for um, someone in my parents' generation to say, hey, I, I like this Pete guy, and I don't care that he's gay. I think he's right on the issues. Right. That reflects not only an, 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 an understanding that, you know, I, I don't want to call it necessarily this progressive liberalism or acceptance or tolerance or any of these, um, you know, sort of um, condescending concepts that, you know, he's a tolerator, he's an acceptor or whatever. Uh, it's more so this sense of like, you know, we, we live in this very diverse, pluralistic society and voting on issues and on policy preference is different than what your preferences for, uh, you know, who you go go home with or, you know, uh, where you pray. Um, and that, that reflects, I think, a sophistication within the community that, that's growing. And I think it's um, intergenerational. I don't think it's just uh, limited to young Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, something uh, that you alluded to was, you know, that we're in the trenches together. Um, you know, American Muslims... Um, uh, the uh, Latino, Latina community, the African-American community, um, the, uh, you know, various causes, whether it's Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, the uh, opposing the Muslim ban, uh, you name it. Um, when these folks are all working together in coalitions, it breaks down a lot of barriers and it forces people to be able to see eye to eye um, uh, on issues that matter and also on issues that, you know, maybe were secondary or tertiary. So I think that there's that evolution is there as well. Um, I did want to revisit some. I don't know how the how how this format works, but I did want to re- revisit a previous topic, if I may. Of course. Um, on the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict issue, um, you know, I, I I second everything that that Shadi said, and I'd also add that it's become a lot more easy for folks who work on Middle East policy to engage in Washington, in the policy space within the Democratic Party, than it is to engage on the issue within the uh, Arab American and and American Muslim community. There is far more nuance now in Washington on the issue and far more political space to be able to take a variety of positions there than it is within sort of the grassroots space where sometimes it's, you know, it's a winner-take-all, my way or the highway sort of mentality. one of the things that I think the piece that we wrote tries to emphasize is that, you know, what Shadi called the sea change and the Democratic Party's views, not just on Israel-Palestine, but on some of these moral and ethical issues and questions within the Middle East, um, whether it's on restraint in the Middle East at large when it comes to military action or, uh, how, or how the U.S. deals with its, um, you know, uh, at times problematic allies, whether it's uh, Israel, Turkey, or the Arab Gulf states. Um, because of that, right now, I would say that folks who are trying to line up behind the Democratic nominee are having a tough time, an uphill climb, uh, convincing folks for whom Israel-Palestine is their number one priority mm-hmm. that we need to be able to see the bigger picture and to do so in a way that isn't condescending, that is not in any way dismissive of Palestinian rights uh, and the indignity that Palestinians suffer daily. Uh, or the atrocities that are carried out uh, by the Israeli government. Um, and uh, to do so in a way that uh, says, look, if we want to build, if we want to build on the gains made within the Democratic Party on Israel-Palestine, on Middle East policy at large, we need to vote for the Democratic nominee, make sure Joe Biden is the president. Um, the problem is, uh, in addition to Israel-Palestine representing all of the important things that it represents, it is one of the three holy sites. It, 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 it uh, houses one of the three holy sites. And I think the history, the decades-long history of the conflict, the optics, the, 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 the trauma borne by the community, the fact that a lot of us in the American Muslim community know a Palestinian American. We know what it's like to hear the stories of the Nakba, you know, um, and we've had their great cooking and we, we're, we, we know their songs and so on. Uh, it's, uh, it's endeared that conflict to the sense that it's become the privileged conflict. So you have um, civil wars currently burning in the Middle East, in Yemen, in Libya, uh, and in Syria, 
uh, arguably with far more grave geopolitical considerations and consequences uh, for not just the Middle East, but also to Europe and the U.S., um, that hardly get any mention within the American Muslim space relative to some of the, you know, what I would call the privileged conflict. And, and would you, I mean, Bernie Sanders made it a sort of, he focused in on it several times, and he made it a, maybe he brought it back to a degree. I think it kind of faded to a point, and it's sort of now it's been mobilized again, that the Palestinian rights matter. Uh, and it's it's a, just a curious sort of moment, though, that Bernie Sanders, and I, I remember this, he sort of identifies himself as a Zionist. He's, he's comfortable saying it, but he's also a pro-Palestinian American politician. And I find that very, very very, very unusual, that that can sort of, you know, you can, an, a Muslim American can turn to Bernie Sanders and say, that's my guy. And 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 within that coalition, you have this fairly new sort of, uh, fairly new understanding that there's, that Palestinian rights matter. And and really, I just want to go back to that sort of the center left, that, that those, those years, 2007 until 2017, what happened that made it kind of so favorable so that the Democratic Party, in particular Bernie Sanders, but others too, could sort of be comfortable saying we stand up for Palestinian rights? Well, so I think one part of it is that there's been a growing realization that to be a progressive, you you kind of have to be a progressive in all things and not just in domestic policy, but not foreign policy. If you're progressive to various... Mm-hmm on all the various domestic policy issues, but then you're like, hey, let's support dictators or let's have an endless war on terror that that undermines the stability of the Middle East and undermines human rights and so on. I mean, it just doesn't work. There's something incongruous about that. And if you're a self-described progressive, then what that means is that the ethical framework is important. And the whole point of ethical frameworks is that they can't be compartmentalized. Right. Otherwise, it really wouldn't be an ethical framework. It would be something else and something rather inconsistent. Yeah. So I think that with the rise of progressive movements, with the rise of this kind of grassroots sentiment that we haven't been taking human rights seriously enough domestically, mm-hmm. uh, as it relates to, to minorities and structural racism and so on, that if you want to extend those premises, you have to also be willing to talk about the structural factors that lead American foreign policy to be quite dismissive of human rights concerns. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. longstanding, decades-long support for authoritarian regimes is a big part of that. And that's something both Adam and I are, are very outspoken about. Um, so I think that Bernie speaks to that. And I, I think that, but also to various degrees, I think um, Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Pete also, I think, connect those two wings of the progressive world, the, the domestic, domestic side with the foreign policy side. Mm-hmm. And you try to build a broader narrative about how you talk about the role of values and morality and to be a progressive means that moral concerns matter, yeah. not just for Americans, but also for those who are not Americans and find themselves on the receiving end of America's pretty bad policies in the Middle East. So I think that's been a shift that we've seen over time. And um, it's it's something there's something beautiful, maybe beautiful is an overstatement, but there's something nice It's and something pretty cool about the fact that many American Muslims were rallying behind um, someone who could have been the first Jewish president in, in American history. Yeah, yeah. I think it's... I, I do ma- want to add... Sorry, go ahead, Adam. Yes. No, no, it's I was going to say, it's, it's, it's magical. I think this doesn't happen. I mean, even in America, this is a very special moment, and it's hard to imagine this happening uh, anywhere else. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Adam. Um, I also want to, you know, emphasize uh, that you know, uh, to give credit where credit is due, the Palestinian American and the Palestinian Solidarity uh, Movement, which is not, you know, uh, which is diverse, and um, uh, you know, they've they've done uh, an incredible job over the last, you know, span of decades, mm. 
inserting the Palestinian cause um, alongside or in parallel to um, other causes for social justice. So whether it's indigenous rights here in the United States or elsewhere, um, you know, trying to draw parallels between the treatment of Native Americans and you know indigenous Palestinian communities uh, back in their motherland, um, to the treatment of African Americans by police, to how Palestinians are treated by the IDF. Um, you know, so that that's, um, that that incredible work um, I think has borne fruits. Um, you know, Linda Sarsour, who is um, you know prominent Palestinian American activist yeah. and a surrogate for Bernie Sanders, um, she herself. Uh, talks about how you know Bernie Sanders' views on Israel-Palestine and his advocacy for uh, Palestinian rights and his engagement, his his I guess very out front engagement uh, with the American Muslim community, which is admirable, uh, didn't come overnight. That was a product of engagement and um, you know disagreement and uh, years of work within the, that progressive space and the, the Sanders uh, camp. Um, so that credit to them and their agency and their work uh, for making that happen. As much as I admire, uh, you know, uh, Senator Sanders for his advocacy on Israel-Palestine and uh, perfect, engaging perfect with the American prelude. I love that. Uh, this is almost yeah. like I should copy-paste that for my own uh, purposes later. I love the <laughs> beginning of the... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, Carefully no, I, spoken. I, I, saw, I, saw, I saw Shadi smiling, so I knew he, he knew I was going to pivot here. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I, I, it was pretty obvious. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I will say that, uh, you know, among the reasons why I supported Mayor Pete, among the many reasons why I supported Mayor Pete, uh, or I would say among the many reasons why I didn't support Sanders or why he wasn't my, you know, top candidate, and I'm not going to reveal who my top three candidates were, but he wasn't my number one candidate, um, was um, sort of because he embodied some of the tendencies within the progressive left, uh, this reflexive anti-imperialism, anti-Americanism that exists, that blames a lot of the problems in the world on America and thus uh, tables over and at times in some of its worst manifestations, whitewashes the crimes of brutal regimes, whether it's, you know, uh, Tulsi Gabbard's engagement with the uh, Egyptian uh, dictator Abdel Fattah al-Sisi or visiting Bashar al-Assad after the destruction of Aleppo in 2016, uh, whether it's uh, seeing uh, uh, a lot of these, um, you know, folks in the Russia Russian disinformation orbit uh, who prominently backed Sanders, uh, who spend a lot of their time uh, whitewashing the crimes of the Venezuelan regime, of the Chinese government in Xinjiang, of the Assad regime, of Putin, um, that they have found comfort in that space. And this mm -hmm. is something that I um, and other progressives and other Democrats have called on Sanders to take a bit more of a uh, harder line on, which is, you know, there, there's, no, there's no progressive moral universe where Tulsi Gabbard should have had uh, a home uh, under the Sanders umbrella. Not, a, not in, you know, my imagination. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, in, you know, whether it's the Buttigieg campaign learning from its mistakes or the Sanders or Warren campaigns learning from their mistakes, that this pro the progressive left also learns from the mistake of alienating um, Latin American voters for, you know, Sanders doubling down on, you know, oh, you know, the Castro regime had a good public health program here and there. And, you know, and also um, being, a, um, being a vessel for some very problematic voices when it comes to uh, foreign policy and morality. But just a final point on that. Can I, speculation, if you just remove the Palestinian issue and if Bernie Sanders never addressed it, do you think that kind of, that, that, there, there would be a leaning towards the center left among the Muslim American voters, or is it does it really just come back to that is still a major issue, and that foreign policy matters, and that is the one of the biggest uh, issues when it comes to the Middle East. Um, I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that I think it's the it's the privileged cause given its history, given what it represents in terms of some of the United States's worst. Um, instincts um, right. in the in the Middle East. Um, so um, I think that it, it's always going to be important. But at the same time, 
um, you know, what we don't want to see is progressives to be, you know, what some folks call progressive only on Palestine, an acronym that I'm not going to spell out. Um, uh, and there's also the, there's also the pitfall. It took me a time. It took me a second. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but there's also, there's, but there's, there's also the progressives accept for Palestine or progressive accept on Palestine. So we see both sides of the coin. Um, what I would advocate for and what I'm sure Shadi would advocate for is consistency in some sense. Right. But I mean, I, I, I sorry to, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Shadi. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I find my, I'm sort of in odd position since I don't really fit into any of the obvious categories. I, I was, and still in some way, I'm a, I'm a Bernie supporter. Um, you know, he was my preferred candidate, but I'm also known as being, pretty hawkish, some might say very hawkish on some aspects of foreign policy. And that's why, you know, sometimes people were confused about, like, you know, why why um, I supported Bernie. Um, and sometimes I even I, I even struggled to explain it myself because it's not <laughs> obvious. But so I, a couple things I would say, I mean, one is there was an aspect of Bernie's foreign policy vision that I don't think got as much attention that really appealed to me. And this was the anti-authoritarian narrative. Now, some people say that it wasn't as consistent as it could have been. And I would have much preferred that Bernie did not um, praise any aspect of the Castro regime. But when we're talking about being critical of what I consider to be the most problematic allies in the Middle East. I think Bernie was the best on really calling out Saudi Arabia, good on, very good on calling out the Sisi regime, being um, an outspoken opponent from rather early on on the Yemen war. So on things like, and, and there was really an effort to outline a coherent view on that, that went well beyond Israel, Palestine. And so when I was looking at candidates and trying to decide about trying to decide who who I felt closest to on some of the issues I cared about the most, that's what appealed to me about the Sanders campaign. Now, um, are there are there folks on, let's say, the hard left who supported Bernie, who I think have terrible views on, say, the Assad regime? Yes. And I think it's unfortunate that you had those people, you know, as part of the um, the periphery, let's say. And I think we also have to draw distinctions between the sometimes bad supporters of Bernie Sanders and what Bernie Sanders himself actually um, said and did on his campaign. Do I wish that Bernie was a little bit more uh, hawkish on intervention in Syria? Yes. But, you know, I'm never going to have my perfect candidate. So I had to, you know, Bernie was not where I was on Syria because it's actually pretty difficult to be more hawkish than I am when it comes to military intervention against the Assad regime. Although maybe Ed Hem might compete with me for relative <laughs> levels of hawkishness. I don't know. So, you know, but I think that a sign of maturity as a community is that we're never going to have the perfect candidate. And it means deciding that, hey, and this is the same thing with Biden. I think that both both myself and Adham, we have um, concerns about Biden. He wasn't our first choice. He wasn't my second or third choice. Um, but you know what? Biden is who the, who the Democratic Party voters decided to go for. We have to respect the will of the primary voters and you know, let's make the best out of a not ideal situation and hope that we can push Biden to get better on the issues that we care about. Let's take that one step further. I think uh, you referenced the the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. And that's, I th- if I'm understanding that right, that could be Bush, Clinton, it could be Obama and Biden. It's just that there's a consistency that's not healthy and that the maybe for the first time in American politics, there's sort of a a different take on that. And do you think Biden will be, do you think any of what we discussed about Bernie or the center left kind of bringing up issues that were not in the, in the mainstream, 
Do you think Biden will actually be able to take some of that? Will any of this translate to the Biden camp? Or is it still sort of a, that is the consensus, consensus camp, despite all that's happened? I think Biden can't help but be influenced by the shifting the shifting positions within the Democratic Party, the fact that there is a strong progressive left wing of the party that has a different view on foreign policy, if he wants to unify Democrats, which I think he needs to do as much mm-hmm. as much of that as he can, if he wants to be Donald Trump, you got to bring Bernie Sanders supporters in, Warren supporters in, and so on, that he has to be more responsive to this part of the Democratic Party that wants to see a different kind of discourse when it comes to things like the legacy of the Iraq war or the fact that the war on terror um, didn't, you know, the endless, endless wars on terror aren't the best way to approach foreign policy mm-hmm. or that you shouldn't be so indulgent of Netanyahu and you got to say, hey, um, not only is Netanyahu the problem, but there's a broader problem that um Israeli, the the mainstream of Israel has unfortunately moved in this center-right, right direction. So you can't just get away with saying Bibi's the problem and leave it at that. And that's almost like a cop-out because then you're not speaking to the broader structural problems that even someone like Benny Gantz doesn't have good positions when it comes to Palestinians and and so on and so forth. And he has to be able to speak to that. And if he doesn't, it's it's um, we're, uh, American Muslims, progressive activists have to call out Biden, but in a kind of constructive way. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be an adversarial way where we say Biden is bad. You know, um, you know, why? Why? Do, why did we end up with this terrible candidate? I think at some point we're going to have to have a more constructive kind of two-way communication where it's like we are part of, as American Muslims or as progressives, depending on which identity, if you will, we want to emphasize that we have to say, hey, we want to be a part of this discussion and here's what we think and here's what we have to say about Israel-Palestine. Listen to us. We're not going to expect you to have the perfect progressive position on Israel-Palestine, because that's not who Biden is. That's not his history. But if he can become better than what he has been in the past, that to me is the constructive engagement that I have in mind. And Adam, could you add to that as somebody who was a foreign policy advisor to Mayor Pete, do you sense that there's a trend in the Biden camp to sort of take in from that and maybe listen more on on that front? You know, uh, I... I wholeheartedly uh, believe that, you know, Biden as a person and as a politician, um, you know, reflects some of the very best of, you know, what we're looking for uh, in American politics in terms of empathy, in terms of, you know, wanting to listen and wanting to bring in uh, a diversity of voices to the table. I think he recognizes, as Shadi mentioned, that you have this powerful, uh, young uh, energetic uh, democratic base that, you know, on the one hand, wasn't able to deliver not even uh, a county in Michigan uh, for, for Bernie Sanders, but still is very important and will be the future of the Democratic Party. And uh, we're already seeing Biden adopt uh, um, and adapt uh, various policy proposals from the Warren and uh, Bernie camps, uh, whether it's on student loans, uh, or whether it's on uh, uh, policy uh, towards uh, banks, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot out there on how uh, these sort of the olive branches that the Biden camp has been extending to the Bernie and Warren camps, uh, and that's very encouraging. Um, on foreign policy, you know, I'd also have to add that you know there is this conversation about morality and um, you know ethics being inserted uh, more aggressively into our foreign policy, um, but I I think that the driving force of uh, bringing forward some of these preferred policy preferences of progressives and American Muslims on foreign policy uh, will be uh, will come from uh, real uh, the you know what is described as a, a more realist camp uh, that has already started to assert itself in the Obama years in the Obama administration the shift away from prioritizing the Middle East uh, I know you know the the Arab Spring and its aftermath sort of uh, 
and, and the rise of ISIS forced uh, the Obama administration to, uh, uh, you know, be more deeply involved in the Middle East. But already you saw this so-called pivot towards Asia and China, uh, yep. uh, where the Middle East was uh, far less prioritized. And you're also seeing other, um, you know, shifts in the world, uh, be it from uh, the coronavirus, which is going to bring uh, forth drastic changes in the region um, in terms of uh, regional upheaval. Um, you know, today I'm not even going to pretend to be an energy and oil expert um, or at all well-versed enough to have a carry a conversation on the issue, but the price of oil plummeting, uh, the economic um, catastrophe that's going to uh, arise because of the, the coronavirus crisis, what that's going to do to the region and how that's going to affect uh, regional order, the, the, um, uh, the resolution of the civil wars, the outstanding civil wars in the region in Yemen, in Libya, and Syria. Uh, that's, uh, a lot of that's going to accelerate the United States' um, departure from the region, and it's going to accelerate um, China's insertion into the region. So a lot of those shifts that began in the Obama years are going to continue, mm-hmm. and it's going to make it a lot easier for the next administration to sort of uh, pivot towards, um, you know, a foreign policy that progressives can, uh, you know, be happier with. Sorry, Shad. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so... And by the way, I just want to add, before you begin, Shadi, I love the dream-like atmosphere behind you. You have the setting where it's, it, it blurs the walls, but it keeps you crystal clear. Oh, oh, so it's kind of like you're, you know, almost uh, <laughs> mythical-like. Well, that's very kind of you to say. No one's really said quite that before, I guess. I, but I do have this special wallpaper, so it might. I think it has an interesting visual effect. <laughs> Whatever it is, it looks dreamlike behind you. <laughs> Great. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so... Um, and this is, you know, uh, this is speaking for myself. Um, so, and I, and I should say that um, I don't, I don't represent Adam's views on everything. So I don't want. Huh. Okay, anyway, I don't think that Biden, if he wins, and God willing, I hope he will win, because I just can't, as just like a, a, in terms of like my own personal sanity and just wanting to have a more relaxed four years to the extent that we can. I really hope Biden wins. That said, I am under no illusions that Biden is going to have a great foreign policy, especially on the Middle East, because a lot of the old folks who were there under Obama, and I'm someone who was extremely critical of Obama's Middle East policy, which I thought was an utter disaster. And I worry that some of what made Obama so bad on the Middle East, Biden shares some of those instincts. And you know what? Um, We're just going to probably have to live with some of that badness for four years or however long and live to fight another day and to realize that if we really want U.S. policy in the Middle East to change, that's going to be a long-term struggle and we're going to have to think about how we can try to affect those changes over time, gradually. But, you know, Biden does not have a great history when it comes to autocratic regimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this seems like forever ago, and it, I guess it kind of was. But um, before, a little bit before the Arab Spring started, um, both Biden and Obama refused to call um Mubarak, a dictator. Yeah. They they were, you know, kind of hemming and hawing about that and being very careful and talking about Mubarak. Every, all of them did that. Even Secretary Clinton, just a week, I think it was a couple weeks before Mubarak fell, said something like, it is our assessment that the Mubarak regime is stable. Mm-hmm. They were really engaging in this, this very problematic stability discourse. I would call it. And um, so Biden, Biden is a product of this very cautious, careful, oh, here are our allies in the Arab world and we don't want to push them too much. We can sort of put modest pressure on them and we want them to be better and to respect human rights more. But they're still our allies and we need their help on Iran. We need their help on Israel-Palestine. So we have to balance these different priorities. Biden is very much of that school, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That said, 
going back to what we were saying earlier, we do see signs that Biden is trying to adapt at least a little bit some of his rhetoric. He said, and we mentioned this in the piece where he did he did talk about Saudi Arabia under MBS being a pariah state because of the killing of, of Khashoggi. So the, there are things like that. And that's where I think there can be some positive adaptation. But when we're talking of Biden, who he is, his history, and someone who's been engaging on foreign policy issues for decades from before I, even I was born, um, you know, he is who he is. Let me actually, let's wrap it up with a subject that kind of ties into this, which is what's been happening in the Middle East prior to COVID-19, the unrest, whether it was in Lebanon or Iraq, or for that matter, to a degree in Iran, these sort of the uprisings that we all witnessed on the news and this demand for accountability, in particular in Lebanon, and sort of the the push in Iraq where I mean, the violence on the streets, but the demands continuing and what's been happening in Iran, that kind of blackout. And if that is to continue post-COVID-19, if, there, if the demands persist, if people go back to the street, just in your in your own experience in dealing with policymakers in, in, in the states, what do you think protesters need to do in order to at least steer American policy in the right direction? Because I'm getting kind of a, a, a bit of pessimism from you, Shadi, that Biden, <laughs> I, I, and I, I actually subscribe to a point to what you're saying, that he does sort of echo the, you said it, the bipartisan sort of consensus that we're used to. And Adham, I actually agree with you that, I mean, it, and I agree with both of you that it would be refreshing to see four years of calm, not this kind of hysteria that we've witnessed under Trump. But if it's the protesters that are going to affect change in that part of the world, is there something that they should be doing to at least encourage America to behave in a more sort of, at least on the right side of history, where it's not defending the autocrats, whether it's Hosni Mubarak, or for that matter, tolerating the likes of Assad, or being very reluctant to get involved today with all that's happened post-Iraq war and the Arab Spring, all that in 2020. Is, is it up to the protesters to actually encourage America to behave differently? So I'll just say quickly, uh, I'd be curious what Adam has to say on this, but I think that there's only so much they can do in the sense that... Um, their major their major priorities are their own regimes. I mean that that's and they have to build strong coalitions. They have to be aware of uh, domestic context. And we're also in a world now where the u s. doesn't seem as important as it was, say, ten years ago. So um I, one concern I would have is that, protesters and pro-democracy activists have lost so much faith in America's role that it simply doesn't matter to them as much anymore. But it will matter to some extent. And this is and if they're thinking about how they can adapt their message accordingly, I think one way to kind of get Democrats more on board is to draw on the partisan contrast. We are a very polarized society. And what all Democrats agree on is not being like Trump. So if they want to make their case, they can be like, hey, Trump was supporting our authoritarian regimes. Now we're really hoping that you good Democrats, because you're not like Trump and you want to draw a strong contrast right out of the gate, that you can draw that strong contrast by saying that Trump brought us too close to authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, and that if Democrats Democrats have to show that that's not American policy. And in that sense, Democrats would have to break with the Obama years as well and say that that may not have been the right path. Yes. And that's my hope that be, Trump in some sense has made democracy promotion a bit more partisan. Uh-huh. And that, um, you know, if Trump does something... Our tendency as Democrats is to try to do whatever the opposite is. Sometimes that's not good because it leads us to be very reflexively anti-Trump. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's good because you can say, well, hey, Trump, uh, Trump was very close to MBS and CC. Let's do the opposite of that. 
Interesting. What about you, Adam? Do you echo that that sentiment? <laughs> well, well cer- certainly, um, you know, the, the next administration, you know, if we have one, uh, will will need to break with uh, the current administration in terms of its naked embrace of uh, authoritarianism, the sort of transactionalism in our foreign policy um, uh, expressed in a way that, uh, you know, in that America first sentiment. Uh, that's something that, um, you know, the cynics of the world, including, you know, some on the progressive left will say, well, that's what it's always been. It's just that Trump is saying it, uh, you know, more clearly, more, more baldly. Um, and I would agree with Shadin as well as, um, you know, his, his sentiments and views on um, the Obama era uh, Middle East policies that uh, there's not much to love um, and, uh, you know, be nostalgic for from that time. Uh, the next administration and hopefully, you know, this next generation of um, national security professionals, folks who have seen uh, what reflexive, uh, you know, the sort of pendulum swing from interventionism to isolationism, how both can be disastrous. Finding a middle ground where the United States is uh, both engaged but also um, prioritizing, you know, the salient drivers of um, Oh, wow, I really need to uh, not start these sort of uh, verbal trains that sort of leave the station before I've even decided what I'm going to say. Uh, let me let me re- restart that. Well, I was a comfortable passenger <laughs> on that train, though. I, I was following you the whole way. <laughs> well, yeah, let me... Um, where can I pick up from? But, I mean, I just wanted to go back to the protesters, though. So do you both say, would you both agree that it's, that's limited in terms of at least steering American policy, that they are sort of focused there. They can't really encourage America to behave differently, that the onus is on American policymakers, and that's really where it, where it has to yeah. be. So, so, yeah, let me take this one. Um, I think what's going to be important, um, you know, if we have, um, you know, a Biden administration next January, um, in the context of the COVID-19 response, and it can, which will exacerbate the uh, drivers of instability in the Middle East, uh, as well as the causes for why protesters were in the streets of Lebanon, Iraq, and elsewhere, um, that as uh, the economies of these countries continue to deteriorate, that the United States is present um, uh, not only to be part of the recovery, um, but is also there for political support, uh, lending support for uh, the Arab streets, um, and really being able to prove that it's going to be there uh, in support of democracy and human rights in the in the region. And that doesn't necessarily have to come in the form of military intervention, mm-hmm. uh, but it certainly won't come, um, um, you know, when you see the sort of signaling and messaging that's coming from uh, many in the democratic foreign policy space, which is, you know, the United States must sort of pivot away from the Middle East, or the United States has no uh, major strategic interest in the Middle East, or there's no more terrorism, therefore the United States has no reason to be in the Middle East, or right. the United States is energy independent, therefore the U.S. no longer needs to be in the Middle East. That all signals all of the wrong messages for, you know, uh, protesters uh, in the streets, but also um, to, you know, these dictators who can now count on getting uh, a green light, uh, whether it's to uh, uh, deploy chemical weapons or whether it's to shoot tear gas uh, at protesters in the street. I know it's a it's a very broad subject, and I know that this is sort of like, this would probably take a whole series of discussions, and I know we kind of, we touched on many different things, but it's, it's great to hear a uh, perspective from the states on what's happening, not just to... America, but that part of the world. And most of the time I'm focused on on Lebanon and regional affairs only. So it's kind of nice to see that there's an active, sometimes a a certain degree of disagreement, but also an active uh, discussion here in the States about what's happening here and there. And I think it's very strange time that we're doing this uh, this way. I I know that every episode I used to do was in person. And it was very intimate, and now I'm sort of relying on on Skype and virtual uh, intimacy, if you will. But I, I appreciate you guys doing this during the middle of this pandemic. And Atam, you're in Arizona, is that correct? Early in Arizona. And Shadi, you're in New York or DC. Oh, oh Atam, you were in Arizona. 
Yeah, you know, I uh, came to visit my in-laws a month ago, and then when the NBA shut down and Tom Hanks uh, got the uh, got the disease, we all decided to stay put here. Oh, okay, okay, that was yeah. a turning point, Tom Hanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, in some ways that did that did sort of shift the the national attention in a serious way. Um, I'm I'm in DC. You're in DC. Department in DC. Yeah. So it's kind of like the neighborhood now. At the time you're somewhere in Syria, Shadi, you're in Egypt, and I'm somewhere in Beirut, and we're kind of talking about the same issues. So yeah, <laughs> I, I appreciate it, and uh, oh, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for listening, and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>